Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Oh, so this isn't the show yet. It's always the show. What are you talking about? Keithley, how is your uh, paternity leave? Are you going nuts? No, it's good. I'm back to work as of today. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I've spent my entire morning reading back through Slack chat logs Hmm. to try to catch back up a little bit, which was reasonable. And then I spent the remaining time trying to get my inbox back down to zero. And um, that was also less reasonable. But it was actually really fast because I just like select all archive. (laughs) (laughs) Back to zero. Done. There you go. Done. I have an email rule that if... uh, if it's more than 30 days old, I just archive it and assume I didn't care enough to actually do whatever it's asking me to. Yeah. The important things will rise to the top and you will do the important things. If it's worth doing, you probably have already done it. Or forgotten about it. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> but then it's not that important if you've forgotten about it. Exactly. Or it wasn't that entertaining. Or that. One of the above. Uh, like right now, I have a piece of hardware that uh, I'm working on that the last three or four times I've tried to deploy to it it's just restarts over and over instead of going into the software. So I'm trying to figure that out and I'm really glad that today is my day off work. What is it? It's a board of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on network management controller Mm. for uninterrupted power supplies and I needed to debug some stuff on the actual board. And when I deployed new uh, software to it, for some reason it compiled locally everything built and when i got it on the board it would get through partway and say you need cowboy plug in the boot up process and then it would just restart and i thought well that's fantastic but since it's restarting it doesn't end up with an ssh connection so redeploying to it is is a huge pain that takes like an hour because i have to go into uboot and reset everything and i have to set up an ftp server for it to connect to and yeah it's awesome did you add cowboy plug did you try did you try that step first? I did try that step and and now I don't even see an error message. It just says it lists everything that's starting under under um, Elixir, all the applications. It's like starting this application, starting that one. And when it gets down to the end, it just restarts. Nice. Yeah, yeah. You should take the restart I, application out of there. Yeah, it's <laughs> just let it start. <laughs> it's a really good one. I found your uh, problem. It, work, it works well. <laughs> good job, Chris. You're welcome. I blame uh, shoehorn. I don't even know what it's, what do you think that you're doing, but that's what I blame. It's probably a shoehorn problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, it means that there's something underneath that that's that's shoehorn might be hiding. Uh, right before this, it was running out of memory all the time, so it's like one problem after another. <laughs> and when you're working on embedded hardware, uh, I everybody's like, "Oh, you should just buy some more RAM. It's cheap." Well, no, I'm sorry, it's built in, and I can't do anything about it. If I only I had some type specs, that would do it. Oh, that that was a that was a gross segue. Try yes. again. Come it's back terrible. to me and if you workshop that and come back it's, here in a few minutes, <laughs> and I'll, I'll see your case then. It's like a bejeweled hot pink segue. Yes. <laughs> so you've been uh, found guilty of terrible segues. You're gonna need to come back here and try that again here in 20 minutes. <laughs> Retry your case. He's got that southern accent down. I know. I was Y'all. gonna say that accent today. It's it's born and raised. What are you gonna do? It's just literally <laughs> bred in. So Andrew, did we get did we get in, your uh, our recording guest. going? 
Yeah, my name is uh, my name is Andrew. I live in Chicago. I work for a company called Albert. Uh, we are in the education space, uh, making tools for teachers and students to help them study for their AP tests and within the classroom as well. And we've been working with Elixir for the last several years. I'm also the maintainer of the Dialixir project, which is the uh, Elixir wrapper around the Erlang tool dialyzer. Um, and then it's new offshoot Erlex. I'm a big, big fan of those tools. Almost every time I'm digging through a project and uh, or, or looking through a code review and I'm like, hey, I think you're, you're missing some logic there. I, I usually tell them, you know, if you put in some type specs, you might at least recognize what you're looking at and maybe think through it. And you might realize that you're you're not handling certain cases. But only if you also use dialyzer. It well, turns the, out. That's true. I, I do. I have seen quite a few projects with specs and no dialyzer or anything. I'm like, so you're commenting. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Even that I find is better than nothing. Sometimes, you know, when you're when you're digging into some random project that you've, you know, that, that has some bug in it, uh, having at least the author's intent there in the type spec is usually pretty helpful. Um, even if the tool is not actually verifying it, um, having the author's uh, original thought there is, is, I don't know, I think that can be a good thing. So what, uh, what, what brought you into working with Dialix or Dialyzer and, and like, why, why do you keep doing it? Um, so my background is, is in the Java space. Uh, so I'm used to having a type system. I'm used to having that crutch to kind of lean on to say, hey, you're not doing that right. You're trying to put this square peg in this round hole. Um, and started reading up on what was available to me in the Elixir space and found that it was pretty much dialyzer. Um, started reading into that and get trying to get it working. I'm sure as every single person that has ever newly introduced dialyzer into their project sees the initial wall of output is very large and very uh, frightening as as it were um and i just wanted to make that better because i don't like mentally putting new lines into walls of text that that's not how i like to spend my time so i wanted to see if i could write a tool to help me do that so so that that initial start with the the big big wall of text. If, if you know somebody's working on a project or, or you hop onto a project and it has no dialyzer, dialyzer usage, how do you, how do you take that first step to not just be completely overwhelmed by, by what's happening? So I think there's really two phases to that. So one is being familiar with dialyzer and um, I guess dialyzer itself um, and, and the things that it can do and can't do for you. Um, and then you know, if you're if you're kind of familiar with that, then from there, just carving off a little bit of a little bit of your application that you 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 know how that works, and then just adding some facts around it. Um, I kind of look at Dialyzer as just it, you expressing some fact about your function or some fact about a segment of your of your application. There are areas of your application that you know better than others, and and starting from there. And expanding outward, I think, is a good way to go. So, can can you run Dialyzer, Dialixer, just on uh, a part of your application? You can't, but you can. There's uh, filtering options now in Dialixer, so you can ignore certain parts of your output. Um, so, if you 
have your code reasonably structured, then you're going to have certain files in certain folders that are, are going to be the, the good parts and the bad parts. And so you can kind of go that way. Um, and you can say that you don't care about particular types of warnings. And, and there's a bunch of different ways that you can go about trying to make that a little bit more manageable. Oh, you mean like the, oh no, that's not dialects or never mind. I was thinking Credo where it complains about logger all the time, but <laughs> Yeah, something I've d- I've discovered has been um, tricky is uh, trying to add <clears throat> dialyzer sort of after the fact uh, with like an established project, and you want to add it in order to start like verifying these things, but you may not have time to go in and uh, actually fix all the all the specs or whatever. But you also want to add it to CI and ensure that it doesn't like get worse. If that makes any sense, like so, you almost want to catch like new things. Uh, I'm curious to know um, if you have a recommended way of starting to gradually int- introduce dialyzer into an existing project because the way that i've done it is just like to hack shell scripts together with like some of the filtering that that is already provided and make it kind of work through that yeah i mean that's kind of where where i was going with that just picking picking a corner of your application that you know pretty well and then saying ignore everything else or ignore explicitly these particular areas just using the built-in dialects or filtering mechanisms and then then from there you can if you're adding new files or you're adding new warnings, the, your CI should just reject that at that point. Um, that's probably how I would go about that. But there, I don't know, there might there might be better ways, but that, that to me seems the, the most reasonable. Well, and sometimes too, you end up getting stuff where it's like, it's in somebody else's library and they didn't notice it because they're not running dialyzer, but like their specs are wrong or, or whatever. And so you don't, you don't discover these things until late, too late in the process. And then it's a lot more work to get in and start fixing everything to make CI pass again and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the filtering is very important, I think. <laughs> I was going to say the 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 biggest pushback that I, I get from a lot of people is uh, running dialyzer is can be extremely slow, on a, especially on a larger project. So they don't want to do it locally all the time. And then when they push it to CI and you set up a CI server, there's often the complaint that, well, it, it works. But... In, in the projects that I've gone through and started adding and running Dialyzer, I've, I find that I there's a lot of bugs that uh, end up popping out just from the Dialyzer warnings. You look at, like, it'll come up with case statements that you, you're not handling correctly just because you start looking at the types and, oh, you're not handling these three types that could come in that your type signature doesn't have or, or whatever. It's been really helpful. Are there any tools out there to, to help alleviate that? time frame that people are putting into it and and that they're complaining about i don't want to say that this is a myth because it's it's a problem that does exist but it's a problem that you only have to pay the cost of every now and then um the only time that the the very large time for dialyzer to build up it's actually hold on before i do that how Dialyzer works is it will go through all of your uh, applications or all the applications that it start in your in your Erlang virtual machine, um, and in particular, it'll do that for all of your dependencies. And then what it'll do is it will build a cache about the facts about it the your dependencies type specs. And then what it'll do is it'll then after that's all done, it'll it'll cache the the result of that and building that up can take like 10 20 minutes that that's an annoying thing um but then once that's there the only time that that ever gets thrown away is if it's explicitly discarded 
or if you bump your Elixir or Erlang versions. Um, and then, so from there, it really comes down to how do I cache that appropriately? Um, and on your local machine, it should just stay there just normally. Um, but on CI servers, you can just say to cache all of the .plt files. And then after it builds its initial initial state, then it's pretty much good to go. And, and the caching on most CI things is pretty straight ahead. Like we we, we have it set up in Circle, um, as which is the CI uh, thing that we use and it works really well and it's it's like two lines or three lines or something like that to both restore the cache and to cache the plts once you're done like it's it's pretty straightforward and i think travis has something similar and i haven't used any other ci things outside of jenkins so where you have to do everything yourself so uh but generally you know that stuff is pretty pretty easy i will say that 15 to 20 minutes up front where you just cook your laptop or whatever for a while that does take that is that's that's a little bit annoying <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I usually do it when I need to send some emails, <laughs> or, or I'm gonna go make some coffee. I do it when I'm cold, <laughs> and I just hold on to my laptop. <laughs> just listen to the fans were up. You sure you're not just mining crypto, Keithley? Yeah, no. I mean, after <clears throat> the the JavaScript news this week, that uh, that might be true. <laughs> Bitcoin's down below four thousand dollars again, so it's like kind of not even worth it. I don't know. <laughs> Upshot GPUs are like affordable again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and they've all gotten way better since last time I purchased one. So, what was the JavaScript news? I missed that this week. There was a dependency that uh, was used in a, a couple projects that the owner decided to give away to uh, one of the contributors. And that contributor then went and put obfuscated. Uh, Bitcoin mining code in there and uh, then just shoved it yeah, on NPM just shoved it up there and then people proceeded to download it it's not it. even in GitHub right because it's detached it's just like you can push whatever you want to NPM as long, like NPM doesn't care you just shove stuff up to it uh, honestly in the same way that Hex does like Hex doesn't care like what is on GitHub or wherever it's just like give me code and I'll host it for you so dude just like shoved a a a patch release that had like i think it like t- like tried to steal bitcoin wallets or something like that like it was it was wild yeah it was it was a particularly targeted attack towards another dependency and i don't know it, it tried to exploit something in there and to be clear when you say it was included in a couple packages it was getting like 2 million downloads a week or something like that wow yeah it was a very highly cuz it was like I think the package that was the so it was if I remember correctly it was two different dependencies and the actual the dependency that the issue got opened up on is not even the dependency that was like that had problems in it but the dependency that got the issue opened up was literally called something like flat yeah it was like flat map reducer something like this <laughs> it's like it's like literally like one function some utility thing that had a dependency first of all that had a dependency. <laughs> and secondly was the dependency became, was malicious it was wild but it's led to all these conversations about like the nature of open source and the nature of maintainership and what what do we owe the people using our software and all this this stuff i don't know the what the what do we owe the people using our software is not going to stop the person with malicious intent <laughs> there's many medium hot takes on this if you want to go read them <laughs> on, on what this means for for the future of open source 
Oh, man. All right. Sorry about the sidetrack there. No, no, it's good. Dialixer. Dialixer. <laughs> so when did y'all decide to um, to add the, the explain stuff? um to to to, for dialogue yeah um so i guess the pretty much all the work that that i've done towards that project has been in the the vein of trying to just make it more approachable and readable for for people um and so the first step of that was to actually start parsing the output appropriately and, and putting in the new lines that i was talking about before um and actually converting it over to elixir um, but once once that was all kind of in a good spot, I still realized that I had no idea what it actually wanted me to do. And so uh, and so I wrote an explain feature. It was actually fully ripped out of, of Credo. I just borrowed the API straight out of Credo um, and just wanted to put in examples of, of how something would produce such an error. Um, because I thought that that might be helpful, you know, for, for me and for others, uh, that also come have the same confusion about what no return means or call without whatever. I don't, I don't even know what all the, all the different ones are, but, um, yeah, they, they can be a little bit terse. Yeah. I, I, I think that will help sell more teams to use it too, because outside of the time, that people initially spend because they just see that first build PLTs and they're like, oh my gosh, this takes forever. But then that when they did get errors back, it was, it's, well, they had no idea what it meant. And so now you guys have made the errors that come back look nicer and then you have the explain feature. So like that is going to save, I think, a lot of people a lot of time and headache if they, if they can jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, that's definitely the hope. A lot of times too, those errors they stack on each other in weird ways. So fixing one thing ends up fixing maybe three other things. Like they, they, they're not hierarchical in like a use, if that's the right term to use in a useful way. A lot of the times you get a lot of like false positives down the line. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, as an example of, of how that could manifest itself, say for example, you were using plug and plug in its type spec decided to say that it returned. Okay. And obviously that that's erroneous. Um, but then everything that now uses the plug behavior would just be incorrect and it would give warnings all over the place. Um, and so I guess when as another way to, to approach figuring out how to how to fix your code base and make that wall of text go away um, is to try and find the deepest modules that are that are throwing um, that are throwing errors like the the utility modules that are shoved into the corner that get imported all over the place um, and then just the the functions that get called in in a lot of places um, if there's anything wrong with them then it's going to lead to unexpected errors up the stream as you've been working on this stuff what's the most common uh, issue that you you feel like people run into when they're getting started? Um, so I guess most of the errors that people open with us are when things aren't working right with the, the pretty printer. Um, and that that's led to, to some insights about the language that I didn't quite know about. Um, we can get back to that um, if you guys want. But people people don't really like have I don't know. It, it, it's kind of hard to like in isolation because people when they post a bug report, it's really just like I have this one function or I have this like these walls, this wall of, of output. And it's it's usually just like some simple fix. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that question very well. 
Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's no problem. I, I have I have one of those bug requests out there, and I had no idea what the issue is, and I have like I don't know. I, I have a ton of warnings, so it's really hard to to figure out exactly if I can find the example of the code that causes that problem that isn't so ingrained in my customer stuff that I can't show it to you. So that's that's been my problem in in coming up with how do I how do I give you an example of what's going on because I don't even know I can't, I can't look at it and even know where to begin to fix it. Yeah, that that's that's been an issue um some people have given me access to their private repos which i didn't generally ask for and they were they're very gracious to do so um but that that's been interesting and just going in and going oh that's why that's misbehaving in this really bizarre way that i couldn't determine uh just from the output what are some of the insights that you've seen yeah, so um, I don't know how many people or how many listeners have worked with Erlang itself and, and not just Elixir, uh, but Erlang itself is a single static assignment language. And so if I go and I say that X is four and then I go and say that X is five, that's actually a compilation error um, because you just told me that X is four. Why, what, are you, what are you doing now going and redefining that? And so how... Elixir gets around it is that all variables get this little wrapper around it and it's a capital V for variable and then whatever the name is and then at the numerical binding of that variable so VX at 1 or VX at 2 VX at 3 um, and that's how Elixir gets around that Erlang design choice um, and so when I was getting output uh, from from people, it would just have these random V at things that I was like, what are those? And then started digging into it and realized that that's what it was. Um, so I thought that that was kind of cool. That's super interesting. Do you have enough? Um, I'm curious to know, like, do you, when you're doing, oh, I guess probably not. But by the time that you're actually wanting to do like kind of nice errors for people in Elixir, you probably don't have the context anymore to be able to like, map those back to elixir source code and know like it was this variable name or whatever or do you sometimes have um so yeah so dialyzer is uh is is a is a, it's a fun tool it 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 uh <laughs> it, it drops a lot of things on the way out um and so for example if you have a if you have a really big struct like you have a con for example um, what it'll do when it represents that to you in the error output is it will say, it'll, it'll grab a couple fields from it. So it'll say like assigns and host and stuff, but then it'll just say underscore fat arrow underscore for the rest of the map. Um, and so I can't do any, any nice diffs with that. Um, I have the line number and the file number that the error is purportedly on. Um, but uh, you don't really get too, too much all the time sometimes though it tells you exactly everything that you need and um and, and you're able to give a nice error message that tells the user exactly how to fix it um but sometimes you can't unfortunately interesting right because you're working you have to basically work off the raw diff uh, or like yeah. the raw output i should say uh right so you just have to have some parser that can actually determine like what all this is and that's all you get Yep, that's and that's what uh, what Erlex does in particular. So Erlex does the heavy lifting for that. 
Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that for folks that maybe aren't sure, familiar? Sure, sure, with sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so Erlex uh, solves the problem that we were just talking about, um, where it takes the raw dialyzer output, um, or it's actually meant to be a little bit more general than that. But how it was originally designed was to um, to to just take the the structs and the uh, the already Erlangified output that we get from Erlang-based tools and then be able to convert that back into what it would look like in Elixir. Um, so it lexes it and it parses it and it pretty prints it um, and then is meant to be plugged into all sorts of tools that that would be useful for. That's cool. Are you using... Um like leaks and or whatever the heck that thing is called yeek yek what or are you using something yeah the, there's a built-in <laughs> lexer and parser into the uh into the erlang and into erlang and it's in it's part of the elixir tool chain just in the compilation path um so if you put an xrl and a yrl file in your uh, top level src directory then it'll produce erlang modules that you can invoke to run your lexer and parser for you yeah and it's and it's standard like bnf rules um and all that like you would get out of like yak or or one of those kinds of tools um i've been known to throw that those tools at problems that may or may not deserve those problems <laughs> deserve those tools because <laughs> it's those are easy i mean they're they're in the sense that like you know like parsers parser generators are kind of magic like they're they're using some deep math to be able to work all that stuff out. And it's like really interesting, but it's really straightforward when you look at the rules and you're like, there's the parsing rules. Sweet. Yeah, they're definitely very powerful tools. They are a little bit more low level than I prefer. Um, if I were using parsers and lexers regularly in, in my day job, I would probably lean a little bit more into the nimble tools. So nimble parsec is the, the nice one. Um, and that's a little bit more at the API that, that most people want, I think. Um, but for such a low-level tool like Dialyzer, we can't really be bringing in libraries all over the place. That that seems inappropriate. I think, I think too, Nimble Parsec, the, the, the parser it generates is faster than the one that the base tools will, will generate as well. Because I think it's a different parser technology. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I don't, that might be wrong. That might be apocryphal. I don't know. But I think that's the case. I might be spreading rumors. Nimble Parsec's like supposed to generate a really fast parser, though. That's part of its goals, I think. Right, writing it down. Yeah, all the Nimble tools are, are very well <laughs> um, done. There's a CSV one as well, um, and it's from the Plataforma Tech folks. So they're all really well done. So you 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 talked about line numbers, right, and being able to point people back to a line number at least. Um, I I just was curious when you said that because macros seem to be a big problem for a lot of people for line numbers and things. Do you run into bug reports and, and problems that people are having based on the fact they're using some macros? Um, occasionally some of the, some of the funkier ones, um, there's, I guess some of the funkier dialyzer errors that I've seen, um, are the result of, of the line numbers being shifted around. Um, but usually that means that I'm missing a, uh, the the what is it bind quoted or no not bind quoted there there's a there's an op that you can pass that says to keep your keep the line numbers as they were um usually that indicates that at least in my own code um 
but usually usually the errors that people are are reporting like i said are, are just the result of my tool just didn't do something properly it didn't parse some piece of output particularly it, it, it didn't anticipate some particular edge case that that the output would produce what has been the most um well two questions what has been the most like fun rewarding part of working on dialers and what has been the most challenging portion of working on it um so when i first started doing it so um it was actually a, a jose opened an issue and he basically said all right guys i know that this is the result of poor source material you don't really have very much that you can go off of but this output just is is not it's not good we we can totally do better um and so being able to actually close that issue was was really fun um and that i don't know that 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 seemed really cool to me um and finally getting all of the output on example projects to just be parsed appropriately um when I when I was actually writing it, I had access to a project that just had a, a whole dearth of dialyzer errors, and so I was able to get a lot of source material and get through a lot of the initial edge cases based off of that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think closing that that initial issue though was 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 definitely the the highlight so far. What has been the hardest part, or what has been the most challenging? Maybe not the hardest, but. I think framing the problem and kind of figuring out how to like how how to even do this was was kind of difficult um, because kind of writing the tool anticipating that I would not cover all the edge cases um, and trying to figure out how to do that in a defensive way such that people's computers wouldn't crash and they would want to just roll back to the previous versions um, that was that was kind of tough um, and then doing like the so the Erlang and, and Elixir are very simple languages under the hood they don't have a lot of a lot of um, fancy constructs that need to be put into the parsing grammar um, but some of them are trickier to express than others so so there there are definitely some um, that parser has seen a couple a couple of revisions let's say um, and, and cleaning those up and getting down to, to the heart of how some of these constructs actually are expressed um, has, has been nice. Um, but that, that was also a, just a, a difficult thing to do because I'm, I'm not really a, a lexer parser person. Like I've done compiler stuff in school, but um, haven't really needed to do that as, as part of my career. Um, so picking up those tools was also interesting so it's like learning learning the lexer and parser stuff as well as learning how dialyzer works under the hood and then like learning how this this new tool works and trying to make them all fit together um i don't know it was it was hard but fun at the same time so what did you when you when you got into the parser stuff what things did you do to to learn it or is it just like hard one beat on it until i figure out how it works there isn't a lot of documentation around uh the erlang based tools uh leaks and yek and um i i was managed to find a couple blog posts uh from erlang devs uh probably written back in the 90s or you know maybe maybe even earlier who knows um just talking about how the tools worked and how how to write some of the example grammars and how they like to do things i guess um and so i'm sorry what was what was the question <laughs> just just how did, what how did you go about learning the 
to to use the lexer or to oh yeah yeah, yeah. so um, and stuff so yeah so just kind of just beating beating on it once i once i found a, at least a little bit of framing from from some of those blog posts um and then just kind of refining it and, and figuring out how could i just more simply express this this rule it, it's kind of like working with like regular expressions like you can do some really gnarly reg regexes um and there's probably something more simple that that you could use instead um and it's really just iterating and trying to to come from that more complicated one to the simpler one yeah there there really isn't a lot of documentation around those though unfortunately um there's also uh the, there's a bunch of warnings that it decides to produce called shift reduce warnings um which are apparently just a a, a thing that's built into or that that parsers produce um, or the particular type of parser that this is using that they produce. Um, and usually that means that you're doing something wrong and it's not always apparent why you're doing something wrong. Um, and so figuring out w like what that even meant and then figuring out how to, how to start debugging that um, was, was tough. In, in writing Dialyzer and working with Dialyzer, you, you probably see a, a lot more... Uh, you see a lot of Erlang code. Did, had you done Erlang before, and and if if not, like how is that experience of of coming from Elixir to Erlang, and did you learn? Yeah, I've actually never been an Erlang dev. Um, obviously, I've I've read a lot about the Erlang internals, just working with with Elixir, um, and read read lots of Beam stuff, um, but haven't really worked with the the language very much itself. Um, and so digging into some some of the actual like source like Erlang Erlang on GitHub uh, source has been interesting trying to find where dialyzer is happening to see if there's some hook that I'm missing um, or anything like that to, to make this process a little bit easier um, but yeah it usually it's 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 Erlang's representation of your elixir source code so if you think about like what elixir is doing under the hood to, to kind of produce that erlang that's usually the the best way to frame it when you're when you're debugging it um at least to me i think um because it it, it might not necessarily be idiomatic erlang even though elixir itself writes really idiomatic erlang have you ever utilized anything like a, a decompile and look down at the um machine code for the for no um i think dialyzer itself does that though i think that's actually how it does its job if if i remember correctly um it, it it'll go through and it'll run across all your the the compiled source code and then figure out if if it uh mismatches with the type specs that it knows about your program i could be mistaken about that though but I, i'm pretty sure that's right it seems like it would be a lot simpler for it to parse the uh, not machine code. That's not what I was thinking, but maybe even machine code over top of like the core, whatever well, like thing. the core Erlang bits. Yeah, yeah. The uh, assembly. Not there. You go. That's what I was thinking. Not machine code. <laughs> it's just one step up. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I I um, spent some time reading the Beam book, and and if you haven't seen that, that is pretty amazing on it's all open on github so anybody out there that has an interest in knowing how all this works into the covers the beam book can 
can yeah it's shed a uh, lot it's of discussion inside. about preemptive scheduling and and all that f- fun stuff is is very well done i think um and preemptive scheduling for for listeners that don't know is is how the beam does its soft real-time guarantees uh, it basically says hey process you can go and you can work for a little bit and then after a little while it says hey man you've you've been holding up the queue for a little bit i'm gonna just put you in the back and then let somebody else do some work for a little bit have you found that learning uh how the beam works underneath changes the way that you or or even the erlang code that spit out from elixir has that changed the way that you write your elixir code um a little bit i would say that i would say that uh you can do a lot of stuff to make dialyzer's job a little bit easier um and so that doesn't directly answer the question i guess but kind of goes towards it um because dialyzer dialyzer isn't a perfect tool um we haven't really discussed that but so it it will sometimes not tell you that something's wrong when there is something that is wrong um and conversely if it does tell you that something's wrong that means that something's wrong um so you at least get half of the you at least get that side of the guarantee um but as far as like when you're when you're writing functions if you reduce the parameter set to the to as shallow of things as you actually need to give to that function dialyzer is often able to do a little bit more insight um into into what's going on so for example if you if you have a function that takes in a con and gives back a con well that's cool i don't really know what's going on in the middle there um whereas if your helper functions are written where they take in explicit maps or structs or something that you pull off of the con then dialyzer is able to look at that and say oh you're trying to access a field on the struct that doesn't really exist um and so you can if, if you just you know follow love demeter and those sorts of traditional software engineering practices it uh you you can help dialyzer along uh and be able to get better output and more helpful warnings uh can you say i know how much you want to get into this but can you say a little bit more about dialyzer not being a perfect tool so the the paper based the the research paper that that produced dialyzer the research group um they they wrote a, a couple papers around their findings um and they effectively made some some trade-offs um to get around i, I guess i think it's to get around some of the the distributed nature of erlang and, and the actor model um because i believe that that's an open research problem that they're not able to to fully type that or something along that effect um and so it, it makes some trade-offs to be able to do a good enough job most of the time um whereas i think so if, if you're sending a message between Erlang processes that are on distributed nodes, I believe that you can get into a state where um, the sender and the receiver might have different versions of, of the program that are running um, or, or things of that nature. And being able to, to type that message is difficult to do, um, I, I think is the crux of the problem. Um, or at least that's one of the problems. I'm not sure if that's the only problem, though. Um, it's definitely one of them. Um, I'm trying to remember all the examples that they cite. Um, one of it, one of the things is like Erlang is all side effects, basically, you know, concurrency, all this kind of stuff, like sending messages, it's all, it's all side affecting things. Um, and yeah, like session types, which is 
a way to encapsulate those sorts of um, sending of messages and contracts like in a type system uh, amongst other things is is like definitely still open research um, and people are pursuing that uh, and at the time I don't know that I don't know that anybody had started working on that stuff and surely like I mean lots of people had come up with ways of typing side effects but um, the the other flip side of that was uh, you could type you you could theoretically create uh, a whole type algebra around Erlang that um, you know did like the Haskell thing uh, if you wanted to do that and like work out a type algebra to do all that um, but the flip to that was it forced everybody to rewrite all their code um, to make the type algebra happy because there's a lot of idioms that happen inside of normal Erlang Elixir code uh, that don't play well with that sort of type algebra and so in order you know dialyzer like one of the things they open with is basically the the original paper i mean is like they wanted to get that type algebra adopted they wanted that you know they needed it to be adopted by the industry and uh in order to do that you have to make it conform you have to make it permissive like it's the same way people want you know typescript or flow to be adopted right you couldn't. You can't add a type system to, to JavaScript that's overly restrictive, or else no one will add it to their project after they already have a working pro- project out in production. So that's how you end up with these like gradual type systems. And Dialyzer is in that vein of we want this to be adopted, so we're not going to make you rewrite on your code. And because of that, we're going to be super permissive. In some cases, way too permissive. But when we tell you an error, it's never wrong. That was like the that was that was the sales pitch. I think. I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> it seems like a good sales pitch. Being permissive, under permissive, over permissive, there, there's a lot of options that you can pass into Dialixer, uh, like over spec, under spec, and all those things. Is there for a uh, maybe an existing project that wants to uh, start adopting Dialixer? What uh, is there a set of flags that you suggest um, them? I actually start do with? the. I, I find the. Uh, I think it's the under spec. No, the over spec. I th- I find over spec to be obnoxious. I, I think it's 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 a it's a very strange warning, um, and I'm not sure in which code base it's it's been useful. But I'm sure that those exist out there somewhere. So how it works is that if you um, say you say that your function returns a map which is, you know, a useful a useful thing. If you don't say that it's a map of a part that has these particular keys and these particular values, uh, it will yell at you and produce a warning. And I find that that level of verbosity is just unnecessary in most in most code bases. Um, so I I always turn that that one on in in particular to uh in all my projects um let me take a look or i turn it turn it off i turn turn off that warning turn i turn on the ignoring of that warning. (laughs) i think that one's the under spec flag and then the the over spec one is the one that will say the actual success type of a function is uh any but you've said that it only takes booleans but it actually accepts any and so that like the way you could get into that scenario is like Let's say you have um, an add function and it takes two integers 
and it produces two positive integers even. Let's like be really restrictive. And you type it as such. You say add takes two positive integers and gives me a positive integer out or whatever. Um, the like if you run it with the overspect flag, um, it'll like yell at you unless you're actually using guards and such to assert that um, that it's actually doing all those things correctly. Like if you don't guard against what the inputs, well then your inputs are actually anything. Like you could submit strings to it and it would just be wrong. And it might, you know, under the hood, like it might catch the error of like you doing one plus one or you, you doing variable one plus variable two or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, the, it'll also tell you that like the, the function signature is just wrong. That one's useful occasionally, but I think that one, is that the one that also breaks the singular guarantee of we're never wrong? I feel like overspect is one that will tell you things are wrong when they're not wrong or something like that like one of the one of those two it might be underspect i don't know one of the two will tell you that stuff is wrong yeah, i believe when it's not i believe wrong. that's correct um i think i think our confusion here means that those names are not most of the names yeah. in are, are not that great to, to be perfectly truthful um but you know that's why we have rappers for things Well, and if anything, if anything that helps make it easier for people to learn is good, because I remember when I learned Dialyzer, I, I mean, I actually just had to read the paper. Like that was the only thing that made all these errors and stuff make sense was going and reading the paper and then trying to figure out like why stuff. Yeah, didn't writing the explanations has, has been interesting because um, yeah, like like I was saying, I figuring out how to write code that will even produce some of these errors is interesting, um, and then some of the ones I don't use. Uh, in, in my day-to-day -day life, like opaque data structures are actually super cool as an aside. Um, but I had no idea how they worked until I started working with this project and had to write documentation about how to produce warnings for opaque data structures. Um, so opaque data structures, just for, for those that are unaware, is that if, if you mark a struct as an opaque data structure, um, and I think it's like at opaque or something like that, I, some annotation, um, and you pass that into a function, that function is not allowed to match on the internals of that struct. So you pretty much get a closed box that you can pass around um, and not have to worry about some, some client of that code uh, looking, looking and saying, oh, well, this has this particular key. You, you're saying I'm no longer giving you any guarantees about the internals of this data structure as the consumer of, of this code. I love that, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I want to use that more often so that people will quit reaching into the data structure. Yeah, and it also forces you to put that in a box. Because now, now I can't change the data structure. What are your suggestions on I how much you spec should spec all in a project? Things. <laughs> There's actually uh, uh, credo rules that you can turn on that say to uh, to issue a lint warning if you do not spec a function. Um, and so that's that exists for def functions. Um, we took that creative rule and also turned it on for def p functions because we're crazy people. Um, and I find that that is really, really good for just human readability. If I'm popping into a file and I'm debugging something, I want to look at the type spec. I want to look at what this thing is supposed to be doing. Um, and I, I think that any any knowledge that you can kind of express at the time of writing um, will just be so much more valuable at the time of debugging. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know that Anna's got to go soon. Is um is all the is all the explain stuff still? Yeah, uh, we're still kind of playing candidate. with some of the output a little bit. Uh, some some of the explanations just weren't there or they were wrong. Um, because one of the ways that you can do the filtering is on the output of the short error message. We want to make sure that those are right before we go and issue a one because that's something that we don't really want to revert back from. That that's annoying. We don't want to make people have to fix their their warnings. Um, and so we're we're kind of still getting. We're also still fielding some some bug reports from people. Um, and hopefully, hopefully it'll be in a spot soon where we can actually do the 1.0 of that and then future revisions that are the result of, you know, parser bugs can just be delegated to Erlex and then that can be iterated on independently. Um, that's kind of where we want to get the project to. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's kind of where that, that stuff's at. Cool. Well, that's exciting. It'll be, it'll be nice to... Um It'll be nice to be able to take advantage of all Yeah, I definitely encourage people to to run Dialyzer and um, some of the newer release candidates on on their projects. Um, the output is is much more sane than than if you've used it in the past. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I think I think using type specs is really important if you maintain a library um, because it, it it's it really just makes it easier for people to find bugs and to spot bugs. Um, it is spot improvements and like when you're going through and you're writing when you're writing type specs it's it's often illustrative of what your program is actually doing um so i don't know i i I think they're very good and i I wish more more projects use them and it is super helpful whenever they're part of your documentation because it prints them there too so you can there's there's an annotation called type doc you can you can actually write docs for all the specific types. One too. interesting quirk about uh, types is, or the at type uh, in particular, at type p, you can write public functions that say in their spec that they return private types, and that makes it impossible for consumers of your code to type spec. So please don't do that if you maintain a library. I've had to fix that in, in people's libraries in the past, and I'm like, I, I think that this should not even be allowed, but, um, you know, here we are. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, we appreciate it. I look forward to uh, the explain feature, because I think that's going to that's gonna. Yeah, and if a lot people, more people, you know, have writer's, writer's hands, then uh, um, please help some of those explanations. They, they could definitely use an editor or two. All right. <laughs> All right. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.